Hello and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in business and economics and policy. I'm your co-host, Yale Scott. And I'm Sarah Bright Inca. So Sarah, uh, obviously big news last week was the whole shakeup at OpenAI, all the drama around that. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I found it difficult to really parse what was actually going on and what the implications of that were for the sector and tech and for the rest of us, you know, just in general. I, I'm happy that you mentioned that because I think most of us did. The Verge, if you were on their homepage, who, by the way, they did the amazing reporting on this issue as a whole. Sure. But if you looked at their homepage while this was all unfolding, it was like top headlines. Number one, Sam Altman leaves OpenAI, won't be coming back. Number two, Sam Altman might be coming back. Number yeah. three, Microsoft hires Sam Altman. Like, all of this was so messy and scattered. Um, and I think we're still left with a lot of question marks about what this means. But it's super clear that this is a massive shift yeah. in terms of this conversation around AI safety, which I think is top of mind for everybody um, in the business world and otherwise. And so, um, yeah, I, I want to, to to dive into it today. And I think we have the perfect person to, to unpack it as well. Yeah, we have a, the perfect guest to walk us through everything that went on and what it means uh, more broadly for AI safety. Jeremy Harris is back on the podcast. He's the co-founder of Gladstone AI, which is one of the world's leading AI safety research organizations. Uh, and I will just say that we had Jeremy on about a year ago, maybe a little less than a year ago, uh, to talk more generally about AI safety and you know what the cutting edge of the technology was and what some of the implications of that were. So if you want to get more in-depth about that, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that episode, which I will put a link to in the show notes. But without further ado, Jeremy Harris, thanks for coming back on Free Lunch. No, it's great to be back for a second Free Lunch. You thought I wouldn't come back after the first one? I know. We always hope that people will come back again, but uh, you know, it's, it's an open question. Uh, I mean, the reason we're having you back, uh, as I'm sure everyone listening could figure out is the drama that has just gone down at OpenAI. So maybe for anyone who hasn't been following it as closely, could you just walk us through, you know, at a high level, what happened there to sort of situate this conversation? Yeah, for sure. There's so much to say. So I'm going to inevitably be cutting out some details that are pretty important. But high level, um, OpenAI isn't actually just one entity. There are two entities. There is a for-profit company, and then there is a nonprofit parent company. And so here's how it's supposed to work. One day, OpenAI will manage to build an AI that surpasses human ability across every commercially valuable task. That will be called an artificial general intelligence or an AGI. When that happens, they'll basically have a giant money printing machine. Like they will win at e economics, right? So the question then becomes like, how do you redistribute this wealth? Because it's absurd to have a single entity that just like takes in and captures all that value. And so, on that basis, they created the nonprofit parent entity, and they adopted what is known as a capped for-profit structure. Basically, the investors in the for-profit branch have a cap on their returns. They can only make 100x their original investment. Anything beyond that goes to the nonprofit for redistribution. So that's the baseline. It's important to note in this context, Sam Altman was fired not by the board of the for-profit entity, he was fired by the board of the parent nonprofit entity. And this matters because the nonprofit entity's board has a fiduciary, a fiduciary obligation to the public at large, not the shareholders in the for-profit entity. 
Does that make sense so far? Yes. Okay. It's complicated. Okay, cool. I'm following. All right, great. Um, so we've got this weird structure that's designed to accommodate essentially a very forward-looking futuristic vision of what AGI might bring. And so now we have to inspect, okay, what is the composition of the board at that parent nonprofit? Well, it's got a bunch of folks who come from a more safety-oriented perspective in AI, um, folks who worry a lot about existential risk from artificial intelligence. In particular, there is one person there called Helen Toner, who is um, known for doing a, a bunch of research on AI safety, AI safety policy especially. And it is said that at some point recently, she published uh, a research report that somewhat unfavorably contrasted the approach to safety taken by OpenAI with the approach to safety taken by an OpenAI rival called Anthropic. Sam Altman is said to have taken issue with her public pronouncements about like, hey, OpenAI, you know, maybe the talk, the, the, uh, the actions aren't living up to the talk. That was kind of her framing in this document and got into an argument with her about this and tried to turn the board against Helen Toner. Apparently, this led to a backfiring effect in which Ilya Sutskever, who is uh, basically the, 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 one of the really key uh, giant galaxy brains at OpenAI who powers their, uh, their research, uh, was convinced by, by this kind of whole debacle to side with Helen Toner and with Adam D'Angelo and, and, and all those sort of safety-minded board members to oust Sam Altman. There is also confusion about perhaps there was a, uh, a recent research breakthrough that brought home the urgency of AI safety that may have suggested that, hey, human-level AI may actually be more imminent than thought. There was a report that was then debunked that suggests that maybe the board had received a letter saying, hey, we might be about to do this, in, in that context, is Sam Altman really your guy? Like, is this the guy who we want to lead us to this you know, very risky new phase in, in human technological innovation? And so these two through lines are kind of the, the, the threads that get us here, or at least they get us to the Sam Altman firing ostensibly. He then gets fired, um, but that lasts only a few hours, basically. Because as you can imagine, you don't get to fire the guy who brought OpenAI from a company you never heard of to you know, the thing that everybody's talking about overnight um, and, and its valuation up to something like $90 billion without pissing off basically all of the employees who are perhaps as concerned about their own personal net worth as the next steps in the safety journey. And so that led to a, a revolt of the employees, which may have been partly orchestrated by, it's unclear, but by Sam Altman. He may have had a role to play in that. You know, uh, you or I might have done the same thing in his shoes if we're being ousted. Um, and then Microsoft, also, crucially, really big investor in OpenAI, withheld or, or seems to may have threatened to withhold uh, crucial cloud computing credits that OpenAI lives and breathes for. Like this is the the computational resources that make this possible. Sarah, sorry, I'm going to stop. I can see you have a question. I know this is a lot. I am shocked, Jeremy, and I just want you to keep going. Oh, <laughs> Microsoft, I feel like there's there was a lot of, uh, the, the reporting was really messy at certain points too. And so just the Microsoft information is new to me. So let's pick up on that point. Yeah, for sure. No, and, and you're right too, right? Like this is, uh, when you look at the, the mysterious goings on in a weird, messed up board structure like this, you have to ask, where is the leverage hiding, right? Who has the leverage over this company? Microsoft uh, invested $13 billion up to this point in OpenAI. Um, the majority of that seems to have been in the form of cloud compute credits. And this is to fuel the insane computational demands that come with training these massive AI systems that OpenAI is training. So GPT-4, their latest system, is thought to have cost anywhere between uh, 40 to $200 million in just compute alone, like processing power alone uh, to train that system. 
And so um, now Microsoft, in exchange for $13 billion, you might expect would want an awful lot of equity in that company, an awful lot of leverage. So they now effectively own 49% of OpenAI. And so when Microsoft says, hey, we're going to basically withhold cloud compute from this company, which again is the, the fuel that allows it to do what it does. Uh, yeah, all of a sudden OpenAI is like looking around at its competitors who do have still access to their, you know, Google is Anthropic's partner. Um, Google DeepMind is owned by Google and so has access to Google's compute resources. All of a sudden OpenAI goes, whoa, we might be up the creek with no canoe. And, you know, now we're, now we're just basically going to do whatever Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft, tells us to do. And that very much seems to have been let Sammy back uh, in the role. With the board who ousted him. Uh, out. Oh, okay, so this is the next part of the story. Yeah. So let's talk winners and losers. Like, I want to yeah. know, like, who had the leverage, who won, who lost in this scenario. It's still, it's a great question. Um, it's, I would say, the dust is still settling because we haven't seen yet how people are going to act. All we, all we have to go on are the public pronouncements to date of the new board members, which is to answer Taylor your question. So the old board, um, it seems, in this reshuffle. Has, has been tanned. The only remaining member is Adam D'Angelo, uh, who is more safety-minded as well, but was viewed to some degree as a bit of a mediator in this process. Um, the new board includes uh, Larry Summers, who is sort of more on the maybe AI accelerationist camp. Um, it, uh, it includes, uh, oh, I forget the name of the other. Anyway, there's another board member who's also uh, sort of more on the accelerationist side. It does not include, though, and this is quite interesting, Sam Altman, is now no longer on the new board, at least for the moment. And I've heard intimations that maybe he's expected to make a, a crawling return at some point. But for the moment, he's off it, perhaps as a like, small conciliatory gesture to the safety-minded folks who, who would have ousted him. And Greg Brockman, who is the um, president of OpenAI, used to be on the board with Sam. They were very, very tight. And he actually quit in solidarity with Sam before he was also not included in the new board configuration. Overall, my general sense, and again, I've got to wait and see how things actually play out. My general sense is that there's been a shift of leverage from the more safety-minded folks to the more perhaps accelerationist um, uh, parts of the, the OpenAI ecosystem. And I think that's a really important thing to highlight. OpenAI is not a monolith, right? We hear these pronouncements from like Sam Altman when he testifies before Congress or whatever. Like, what you ought to imagine as he does that is a gaggle of OpenAI employees in the background uh, either vigorously nodding or vigorously shaking their heads at what he's saying. There is discord in this company about what the proper next steps are to safeguard you know, the future of AI, the future of humanity, and so on, which they really see themselves as doing. Maybe we can just define those two terms for people so it's really clear. Who are the, what do the AI safety people want and what do the accelerationists want? Yeah, and, and it is, okay, so, so the accelerationist language, I should walk that back a little bit. It's by contrast to the safety people that I'm calling Sam A accelerationist, right? So you can imagine a couple of different perspectives on this, right? Let's say that we think we've unlocked the key to human level AI. The question is, what do we do about it? Do we race to build it as fast as possible? That's one, one philosophy, and that would be true accelerationism. Um, do we race to build as fast as possible despite the risks that we might lose control over these systems, which uh, seem to be very real risks at this point, despite the risk that they may be weaponized in catastrophic ways, which seems to be a very real risk. So that's full-on accelerationist. That's not what Sam Altman is. Sam Altman's perspective is a little nuanced. So it goes something like this. Um, I believe, says Sam Altman, 
that we need to release and deploy these systems to the public as fast as possible so that policymakers and the general public can get used to seeing the cutting edge evolve. So they can understand what the strengths and weaknesses of these systems are, so we can open public conversations on the future of AI and indeed the future of humanity, just like ChatGPT did. In fact, I'm pretty confident he would cite ChatGPT as an example of the success of this approach. We've had the White House executive order on AI safety come directly out of the ChatGPT line of effort, EU AI Act, all that jazz. Um, so his, his philosophy is like, look, you don't build this stuff in a vacuum and then just release it to the world one day with no preparation. You got to do this steady release. Now, this just happens to also align with a philosophy that would bring in a lot of money that would allow OpenAI to invest more in processing power so they can scale the next generation of system. So it does tie into this picture as well. And some might say that's a you know an awfully convenient um, coincidence, but I do see merit in that argument for what it's worth. I think there is some truth to the idea that we're having more nuanced conversations than we have otherwise would because of it. The hard, more hardline safety position is um, every time we scale these systems up, Every time we build a next version of GPT-4, a next version of GPT-5, uh, we cannot currently predict what the capabilities of that system will be. Um, what we do is we basically take more computational horsepower and we, we use it to train a, like a bigger artificial brain, if you will, and then we just get to sit back and be surprised at the capabilities that emerge from that system. Will the next version of GPT-4, will GPT-5, be able to help people carry out cyber attacks? Will it be able to design bioweapons? We don't know. OpenAI doesn't know until they build it. And so there is intrinsic risk that comes with the process of scaling. The safety-minded argument is often that, hey, you shouldn't be allowed to train over a certain level uh, until you can predict with confidence the capabilities that will emerge at that level. So that's kind of you know, roughly the full... And then, and then there's the more kind of even more extreme perspective that says we just shouldn't do these anyway because you know superhuman intelligence is just bad and we, we don't want it in the world. So in terms of like the work that um because it could be a good time to bring in a company like Anthropic, which like people left from open AI because they wanted to develop AI in a more kind of I guess safety minded way. So like how do you see the differences of approaches play out in like those two companies? Like how was Anthropic approaching it? How was AI open AI approaching it? Yeah, great question. Um, and this is actually something not enough people, I think, are, are digging into. What are the alternatives? Like, what are people really debating? Um, so you're absolutely right. Uh, actually, the history of trying not to build an AGI that that wipes out humanity is actually like really kind of sad and funny. Um, so before there was OpenAI, there was Google DeepMind, and Google DeepMind was started by Demis Asabis when he was like, "Oh my God, I think we might actually be able to do this in the reasonably near future." and that'll be really dangerous. And so I have to build it first so that I can make sure it's done safely. So he does that. And then Elon Musk goes, oh, fuck this Demis Asabas guy. Uh, AGI is gonna be built soon, so I have to build it first so I can do it in a safety-minded way. So he did that. And then within OpenAI, the safety team goes, oh my God, AGI is gonna be built soon and we don't trust OpenAI to do it. So we have to splinter off and make our own AGI because we're gonna do it safe. And then after that, in this most recent round, presumably the board of OpenAI was like, oh my God, AGI is gonna come soon. Uh, we don't trust Sam May to do this. We got to kick him away. You know, and you kind of get the same dynamic. And so this is sort of like what happens when you have racing dynamics that are baked into the, the, the structure of the technology. To answer your question directly, Anthropic has uh, a research program that's oriented towards AI interpretability. So can we find a way to peek into these artificial neural networks, which right now are completely inscrutable? We have no way of 
telling anyone a coherent story about what's going on inside these networks that explains how they think, what plans they may be making, whether they may be uh, planning, for example, to deceive their operators or other people, as has been known to happen. Um, and in fact, we're seeing deception become an increasingly big problem with these systems as they're scaled with more computing power and so on. Um, so, so Anthropic, is, it, one of their key differentiators is interpretability research. Another thing that they're really good at um, is, is studying the process of scaling and developing what they call responsible scaling policies. So sometimes known as RSPs. And basically this is like, as you scale your, your um, system and its capabilities go up, how should you think about the evaluations that you run on the system? When should you test for things like uh, deception, like bioweapon design capability, like malware design capability, like self-replication? Interestingly, a lot of these things that Anthropic is, is checking their systems for as they scale them more are now reflected in the White House's um, voluntary commitments from the summer and also the executive order that came out recently. And so these are actually getting formalized pretty fast in at least executive policy in the US, which I think is kind of cool. Um, but yeah, so that, that's one of the, the key differences. Culturally, though, I think that's the, the, the main difference is culture. Uh, I personally expect Anthropic to actually stop scaling once they hit a system that displays certain scary properties. Um, I am uh, unsure about other uh, players in this space, um, but Anthropic, yeah. It, would you say that the changes at OpenAI, where we've netted out at least today, are a net positive or negative when it comes to the concerns of uh, AI safety researchers? Um, I think it's, it's too soon to tell. Um, generally, uh, yeah, generally, okay, so, so one observation, um, the time to set really good safety measures, really good corporate structures for safety was before we entered the acute phase of racing dynamics that we are now in, right? It's not obvious that Sam A's next move right now looks any different from Demis Hassabis's next move at uh, DeepMind or from uh, Dario Amode's next move at Anthropic because in all cases, uh, these guys need to get to AGI and uh, in all cases, getting to AGI seems to involve just like throwing a bunch more compute at their models and seeing what happens. And so now in a, in a very real sense, um, these CEOs don't necessarily have the agency that they may appear to have. They're locked in a market, uh, market dynamic that t strips them of their agency. The one thing that was um, moderating that tendency at OpenAI was corporate structure. Like the corporate structure is the thing that was established before, intentionally, before these racing dynamics took hold, precisely in order to allow for the ousting of a CEO if the board felt that the CEO's actions were not aligned with the fiduciary obligation that the board had to the general public. So to the extent that that board is being reshuffled, as part of an attempt to mm, retroactively compensate for that dynamic, this might be worrisome. We don't yet know if that's actually the case. We don't yet know how people will vote, uh, but that's something I would say to keep an eye out for. But that means that the same checks and balances aren't going to be in place. Uh, good question. I don't know if the corporate structure, so the corporate structure is still nominally the same. We still have a nonprofit parent with the authority to you know, give the CEO the boot, um, what we just have is a change in the composition of the board of that nonprofit parent. And so uh, I, I, I agree with where you're going there. Individual <laughs> personalities do have an outweighed yeah. impact. Can I ask you about yeah. uh, Larry Summers? 
why do you think he is on the board? It seemed like a weird inclusion, a strange inclusion to me. Like I didn't realize that Larry Summers had any expertise in artificial intelligence. And, you know, if there's someone who's a representative of establishment, American government and finance, it would be uh, Larry Summers. So what do you see as the the purpose of his presence there? So, yeah, it's an interesting question. It's part of what we are trying to decipher. Uh, I think what everyone is really. Um, I think Larry Summers has had affiliations with OpenAI that actually go back uh, to way before the the current era. Mm. Um, And so in some sense, uh, my understanding is he's sort of resuming some of his original uh, relationships with with the company. He may even have been on the board previously. I actually can't remember. Um, Yeah, don't quote me on that. So that's something I I need to double check. Let me just... uh, do a quick check here while we talk, but um, yeah. So, uh, did you join the board? Okay, so no, he, he may not have been there before. Anyway, I, I do believe he had previous He's associations around. there. He was around. The, the purpose of this move seems to have been, as it's been expressed, at least outwardly, is stability. Uh, people saw the unprecedented disruption that came from the firing of Sam Altman with really no warning as this very uh, inappropriate thing. Uh, this is often the framing, like you can't have a company with a $90 billion market cap all of a sudden um, implode and, and fire their CEO. And so there's this notion that like, well, the adults need to step into the room here. And, and Microsoft, I suspect, played an important role in guiding that transition to what they would call stability, um, what, uh, what some in the space are looking at instead is like maybe less accountability on the safety end, depending on the composition of the board and how they end up behaving. I'm a little unclear exactly on where that goes. Okay. I also want to ask you about something that you uh, mentioned earlier, which was this letter about a possible advance in uh, OpenAI's technology. There was a letter and then there wasn't a letter. And then, you know, there was various reports of different things. Uh, So can you go into some detail on what that was about? Uh, And then maybe we can talk about what the actual technological a quote unquote breakthrough that it was in reference to was also about. Yeah, and, and I think you're, you're right to separate those two out, right? So, first we have this uh, article that comes out, I think it was Reuters, that said, hey, uh, it seems that the board's action to fire Sam Altman, Altman may have been precipitated by a letter the board would have received from some folks at OpenAI warning of an imminent breakthrough, warning of something that seems like it you know, might have suggested super intelligence or, or, or superhuman AI was imminent. Um, then there was a report, I think it was The Verge that came out and said, oh, well, actually, you know, not so much. And so now everybody's throwing their, their hands up uh, in the air. One of the details that did emerge from the Reuters, I think it was the Reuters report, was at least this notion that the system in question, the breakthrough in question, had an internal code name. And this internal code name was Q-Star. And I just want to pause here and say this is the, the only fact that we know for certain. And so, or actually, we may not even know that fact for certain, but supposing it's true, it's the only thing we really know concretely about the system that would have been leaked. Everything that follows is speculation. I think it's informed speculation, but it's speculation. Um, so if we go back to uh, earlier this year, in fact, late last year, there, there's this question always when it comes to reaching superhuman AI. Actually, maybe that's where, where we can start. Um, currently, 
ChatGPT, all the most powerful systems that we have, they all work the same way. They're text autocomplete systems. They are glorified text autocomplete engines. They read all the text on the internet and basically they'll take in a sentence and have to predict like what is the next word. And what ends up happening in that process is a kind of, it's almost magical. If I give you a sentence like, uh, to counter a rising China, the United States should blank. In order to fill in that blank, you have to know facts about China, about geopolitics, economics, the United States, like all this kind of complex international strategy. And so there's a sense in which if we can train an AI to do autocomplete really well, we must have trained it to learn what, what's known in, in the industry as a world model, a, a model of the world internally that it can then draw from to make inferences to solve important problems. That's how ChatGPT is actually trained just a massive amount of text autocomplete practice that eventually makes it internalize some of these facts about the world. Now, the problem, and, and for various reasons, I actually think this would be sufficient to reach superhuman AI, but the, the, the counter argument to this is you're never going to reach superhuman AI by training a system to emulate human text. Right? Like we, all we have is human intelligence that's writing all the text on the internet. The system is doing text autocomplete on basically just human intelligence. So it's never going to surpass human intelligence, right? And so the question then becomes, how do we get beyond this? And the only place that we have ever seen genuinely superhuman creativity from AI systems, as far as we can tell consistently, is uh, this area called reinforcement learning, which is different from language modeling, which is the ChatGPT thing. The way reinforcement learning works, it's a glorified process of trial and error. Basically, these systems, uh, typically they play video games. So they'll, you know, they'll try to try one strategy, fail, and then like try to tweak their approach and try again. This is sort of like the, the glorified process of trial and error that reinforcement learning does. And, and if you build a system like this and you get it to play itself, if you're playing a two-sided game like chess or Go or Atari or StarCraft II, which fairly recently was mastered to superhuman levels by these systems, you can start to think about these systems as playing off each other and climbing a sort of ladder where you know one, one pushes the other a little bit further and a little bit further, and there's no human in that loop. They just get better at playing each other. And that process is unbounded. There's no human intelligence threshold that you magically hit and then it stops. You can just keep going and going and going. And this has happened now in, in a whole range of different games and settings. And so the question has always been, how do we think about this notion of what's as it's called self-play? How can we take this self-play idea and try to apply it to language models to get these systems to kind of perform better? And it seems possible that, that this may have something to do. So, so STAR, um, oh man, I forget what the acronym stands for. But anyway, it's like self-teaching or, or yeah, self-teaching, ah, whatever, uh, something. Um, so essentially, this is this idea. It, it, there was a paper that OpenAI put out that had the word star in the title that referenced this sort of notion. And so the question is, maybe this is you know, being applied to, for various reasons, people think math problems are like the place to try this first. And if it works, so it seems, the claim is that this worked for very simple math problems to get like very high fidelity responses from these models. If it works for very simple math problems, we know that with more scale, so more processing power, these systems just get better. And so even though they're just acing grade eight level math, uh, there are ways in which you could extrapolate from that with pretty high confidence that these systems could solve basically any logic problem. And so if that's true, that's the story. Why is that? Because uh, to me, it doesn't necessarily follow 
you know, without knowing anything about this, that if you can do five plus five equals 10, that you can then tackle a whole other range of uh, problems that might have safety implications. So why is that? Yeah. Okay. So this actually speaks to a, a good way to answer this maybe is to flip it around and go, why can't chat GPT solve math problems reliably? Why can't autocomplete solve math problems reliably? Um, so autocomplete ultimately is only going to be able to uh, solve problems that look like problems that it has seen before. So the classic example is like, you know, it'll do great at two plus two. Why? Because you can find like, a, you know, 12 million examples of people writing two plus two equals four on the internet. And it's had to autocomplete literally those. So it's like a bad student that's just memorized the answer to the test question. Um, as you increase the number of digits in the numbers that you're adding together, so you do like 5523 five, plus 2944, you get to the point where eventually the system has never seen um, anything like this before, where you know that's got to be a unique thing because no one has ever asked exactly this math problem before. And that's where the system starts to fail because at least for now, I would argue this changes with scale too, but at least for now, uh, these systems are just replicating the patterns they've already seen. And so what we're really looking for to unlock that next level of ability is the ability to reason what's called out of distribution, essentially reason in contexts that look nothing like what's been trained on before. That's what this self-play thing does. And applying it, it's, it's interesting, you know, applying it in um, at these proof of concept problems at small scales, that's what sort of shows us, oh shit, it's doing an out of distribution thing. It's actually solving a problem it hasn't seen before. And it's succeeding in these simple ones. And so now we just imagine ratcheting up the scale of the language model and you can start to see it perform better. Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. What I still don't understand is, well, let's start with what I do understand. So the language models, a lot of it is based on inputs, right? And you've seen this thing before, so you can kind of guess what comes next because you have all this information. So what is, and this might not be the right question, but what are like the inputs, air quotes, of like the reinforcement learning like because i think it's easy to understand how it can make sense with a lot of information but how does it make sense with what's what's driving i guess that that same problem solving on the reinforcement side if it doesn't have the same inputs yes yeah, good question so um uh in video games you usually feed in like um actually some people feed in the pixels on the screen and and then usually a, an extra number like a reward number that the thing is actually optimizing for that tells it how well it's doing at the game. So it'll take in the pixels and then do some, some crazy math on those pixels. And then based on that math, it'll go, okay, then my next move ought to be X. And then if X works, in other words, if the reward goes up, it goes, great, let's keep tweaking my approach in that direction, roughly. Let's, keep, let's go further in that direction and, and so on. Um, and so the, the question is then, how does that map onto the language, uh, language modeling approach? And what you need ultimately is that reward. You need some measure that like, okay, we've actually succeeded. We're, we're, we're getting better so at it. So is the difference the objective? Yes, that's, that's a really big part of it. And, and that's part of why math is so helpful because you can actually grade it. You can be like, oh, you actually solved that math problem. Right. Right. Okay. So I guess, so is it seen, I guess, in your world as that that would make sense, that this is the next natural step? Clearly, okay, there was some sort of breakthrough that brings reinforcement learning kind of into these language models. Is, is that kind of what the, the big, the kind of the guess is? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I think this was um, technically pretty obvious uh, for a long time that the, the one path 
to breaking this, to fixing this problem of like hum, just being capped at human level intelligence was going to be reinforcement learning. It seems like Google's Gemini, which um, has had its release date pushed back now a couple times, it may be, I think, coming out in the next few months, is, is basically going to be another version of this, basically a- applying a kind of perhaps reinforcement learning, uh, certainly some kind of explicit strategy search uh, to language modeling. So this is the path that we've been on for a while. It's the fact that this particular kind of breakthrough has ostensibly happened. That's yeah. So my next question is, is that we spoke about earlier how, you know, the company that unlocks AGI is just going to be super rich and have, you know, all the economic opportunity possibly, but what are some of the actual like use cases? Like, what are they going to be able to sell? Like, what is this development unlock? Like, what does that look like for the rest of us? Yeah. Um, and this is where I think you're looking at a combination of two different things. One is there are there are a ton of tasks right now that are bottlenecked by intelligence, um, by cheap intelligence. So, you know, think about any, like literally any white collar job where you don't move physical objects around the world all day. What you do is you move bits around on a computer all day. Um, so whether you're writing text or generating images or videos or whatever, uh, at, at whatever level of analysis, I mean, if you can if you can bottle human level intelligence and then deliver it on tap, uh, you can fully automate all white collar jobs. Um, there's a separate question as to whether you get to the point where uh, you can translate this into robotics. There's an old saying in in sort of Silicon Valley that hardware is hard, um, and this is very true. All of my friends who do hardware startups end up. Uh, not necessarily regretting it, but feeling the pain very intensely. It's difficult to port things into the real world. But um, these language models have been shown to be effective at powering robotic systems because they can understand plain English commands and translate them into the movements of sensors and actuators and things like that that allow robots to do their thing. So it could also extend to the physical world surprisingly fast. I like how we just breezed over that all white color jobs are going to be automated. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, this is, the weird thing is, these are just the conversations that like um, I've been having with friends and, and, it, and that these guys have been having at OpenAI and DeepMind for the last like five years. It's always been obvious we were going to end up here. Like, I don't think, there, there are interesting arguments for why we, why progress may not continue um, I think those arguments amount to just goalpost shifting, um, where you know, we keep getting like, oh, I'll, I'll worry when an AI can do X, and like two months later it can do X, and then we hear about a new thing that supposedly proves that we're not there. But really, this like this is just like water cooler conversation at the Frontier Labs right now. So when you, because I think the, since the last time we had you on, the discourse around this has uh, not necessarily evolved, but just... Uh, heated, I guess. There's a lot more people yeah. talking about it. So, you know, I do notice people like Yan LeCun uh, and others in that camp of sort of like, this is not such a big deal, um, dismissing these advances, dismissing a lot of the risks that you're talking about. Uh, and I, you know, personally can't quite wrap my head around their argument, but, you know, they're much more knowledgeable uh, about this than I am, obviously. So I do take it seriously when they say stuff like, this is not a big deal. You got nothing to worry about. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I see what other people are talking about. I talk to you and I do <laughs> worry quite a bit. So what do you think about what people like, uh, yeah, and Lacuna, we don't need to make this personal, but what do you think about what, what they say in response to what we're seeing happen in the space right now? 
Yeah, I, I think um, this is a really good point to flag. Like, no one knows, right? No one knows what's going to happen. It may be that for purely market reasons, our ability to control these systems um, will increase along with the capabilities of these systems. That's possible. Uh, another possibility, uh, and the one that uh, Yen Lacun sort of leans towards more, is like, we're, we're not anywhere close to AGI. Um, so you could either say, like, ah, sa we'll get safety by default, or uh, we're nowhere close to these, these systems, so we shouldn't worry to begin with. Or some people say, uh, yes, we are close to these systems, and they will be dangerous, but the first time they try to uh, wipe us all out or something, we'll catch them because they'll make mistakes because you don't go from zero to hero perfectly the first time. So th there are kind of layers to this, and, and I actually had a, a two-hour podcast episode with my co-host Andre on uh, Last Week in AI where we basically un unpacked all this. He's more of a skeptic, and so you know that might be a, a good kind of longer-form reference. That, yeah. yeah, no thanks. I, I think when it comes to uh, Yan LeCun specifically, um, first of all, uh, Worth noting, there are three people known as the godfathers of AI. Uh, there's Yan LeCun, he's one of them. Um, the godfather of AI, usually when people refer to him as, in the singular, is Jeff Hinton, who recently changed his mind in the last year or so and said, I actually regret my life's work, and I think that this is actually a very real risk. And then there's Yashua Bengio, who basically did the exact same thing in the last 18 months or so. So we're sitting at two out of three of the founders of the field. Uh, we're sitting at uh, basically all the safety teams, the technical safety teams at all three of the world's leading labs um, that are unanimous in saying this is a real concern. Uh, that, I, I think that's uh, the next concentric circle is AI capabilities researchers who tend to be less concerned. People like me would argue that's just because they don't understand the problem as deeply. I, I think that's um, you know an, an uncharitable framing perhaps, but... Uh, it is just a fact of the matter that AI safety research is as different from AI capabilities research as chemistry is from physics. These are two different domains. And just like you wouldn't turn to a chemist to explain black holes to you, um, you probably ought to be a little careful in talking to AI capabilities researchers. And I think the best case in point is that literally two of the founders of this field, like who understands this better than them, made a complete about face and publicly say they regret their entire life's work in the last 18 months, because they learned stuff about this space that caused them to update their views. Right. It's not that they didn't understand right, what they were doing, they were at the pinnacle. Um, to get more specific though, looking at, at uh, lacoon type arguments, when I talk about goalpost shifting, so in, in my estimation, unfortunately, and I think Lacoon's a well-meaning guy, very brilliant, um, I think there is a bit of a, a goalpost shifting thing going on here. Um, he famously issued a challenge and said, look, I'll worry about his particular thing was, um, I have this problem that I want to give to ChatGPT. There are seven different gears, and these gears are connected to each other like this. And if I rotate gear number one in this direction, what's gear number seven going to do? And when an AI can actually solve that problem, that's where I'm going to say, okay, we're, you know, now we're in trouble. Um, I think something like three months later with the release of GPT-4, that problem was solved trivially, like trivially. Uh, this keeps happening. I, like I've had debates. You can go back to debates I've had on like my old podcast with folks. Yeah, it, it, where it turns out the same way. Like there are different lines for everybody. Is that is that because he put the problem on the internet with a solution, and then that was absorbed into the training data? Yeah, really good question. Really good question, and very fair. I think by the time I, I suspect by the time he put it up there, um, the training run for GPT four had already been completed. And so it probably wasn't incorporated because OpenAI sat on GPT-4 for about eight months before releasing it. Um, but, but that's a very good question. And that's, that's part of what people argue about in this space. Right. Uh, yeah, the uh, last thing I'll, I'll say about Bengio is his skepticism is often focused on this argument 
known as AI power seeking. We're talking oh. you, Benji. Oh, sorry, Lacoon. Okay. Sorry, yeah. getting my Godfather. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Godfather one, two, and three. So yeah, there's this this idea that you know, no matter what objective you're trying to achieve as an AI system, uh, there's really no situation in which you'd rather be turned off, in which being turned off makes you more likely to achieve that objective. Um, and likewise, there's no situation where you would rather have access to fewer resources or be less intelligent, because those strictly make it less likely that you're going to achieve whatever goal you want. Um, this premise has actually been studied quite robustly. It's been studied empirically, theoretically. Google DeepMind researchers have like extended it to show that, yeah, actually, this is we should expect what's known as power-seeking behaviors, these sorts of behaviors, to emerge as a sort of default behavior of very powerful systems. It's not because they're human. It's not because they have some weird, perverse, human-derived drive for power. It's not because we're anthropomorphizing these systems. It's literally just like, this is the best way to solve for the objective. And Yan LeCun um, uh, used to, I don't know if he still does, I, I would hope he, he hasn't, because he has updated in this direction a little bit more uh, lately. But it used to be that he would say things like, oh, we're, we're anthropomorphizing these systems and kind of putting on them our human sort of drive for power. And so I think that was one dimension of the argument that um, I personally found it convincing, but one of the challenges is like, we're all locked in our own perspectives, right? I'm locked in my own. So I read his tweets and I'm like, oh, that's so like obviously wrong. Um, I think he's an interesting guy and, and there have to be skeptics in the conversation, but we cannot just have, you know, AI safety hawks be the only ones uh, voicing opinions. Returning to the open AI situation, um, I'm curious about the role of the effective altruist movement. Um, and I don't know, maybe if you if you want to, you can give a little definition of what that is for people or that they can just Google it. But it does seem like this is a uh, ideology or a philosophy that has a significant role to play in the trajectory of AI. So I think it's important that we try to understand what what that role is. So can, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think this is a, a really, it's a really thorny question. I think you're right to refer to it as an ideology. Everyone has an ideology of their own. I think that um, all ideologies have failure modes. And so I'm about to describe or focus on the failure modes of this particular ideology, but I think it's worth keeping in mind that like, you know, all, all ideologies have failure modes. Um, so this is, this ideology or this perspective starts with a question. Um, you have $100 in your wallet. You want to uh, donate that money to be maximally effective, to, to do the maximum good in the world. What do you do with it? And you'll notice that this question is different from like, what is the donation that makes you feel best about yourself, right? I might go out and I might donate to like some local charity and, and I can see the faces of the children whose lives I'm impacting, you know, that makes me feel good. This question is actually asking you to be more dispassionate than that and say, you know, where can, where is that money best leveraged? And so this whole community arose out of Silicon Valley mostly in response to really a massive amount of wealth that was being generated there. And people were trying to figure out what's efficient philanthropy. What does it look like? And the answer early on tended to be like, oh, well, we've run the math and it turns out that malaria nets in Africa, that's the thing that you should be sending your money to, right? So big effective altruist cause to, to sort of ship money off to malaria nets in Africa. Uh, but then the conversation deepened a bit and people started to go, well, wait a minute. Um, maybe we should think about future humans as being as valuable as current humans, or at least being worth considering as, as sort of like moral agents or, or moral patients. Um, if that's the case, then 
our donations are, are, and, and the way we spend our time ought to be focused on, on the future of humanity as well. Uh, what are some of the ways in which that future could be imperiled? And this is where you start to see the effective altruist movement consolidate around you know, catastrophic risks, extinction level risks. AI quickly becomes a focal area. And this is in a context where no one's paying attention to AI, right? This is before ChatGPT, it's before GPT-3, it's before GPT-2, it's all the way back, you know, early 2010s, even before that. And so for this reason, the early AI safety community is basically just a bunch of effective altruists because no one else is paying attention to this problem. There are a bunch of thinkers saying like, hey, I think this will be an issue at some point. Um, but, but by and large, this is what seeded the movement. Now, one of the problems with effective altruism, at least in my opinion, uh, is that um, it, it, it is quite myopic. It, it invites us to think of ourselves as like robots that can just optimize for uh, value that we create in the world. This kind of creates like a central planner's dilemma. How do you actually like quantify that value? And then do you just become uh, a myopic optimizer that just like has your own metric and, and you're just going to focus so hard on that and you'll, you'll end up doing anything in service of that objective? This is what happens with Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, Sam Bankman-Fried famously uh, said, well, so first off, he's an effective altruist, very prominent one. Um, but famously, his particular... Uh, take the, the kind of metric he was interested in was one that would have him play any game that had a positive expectation value. In other words, uh, if you gave him a coin that would, um, you know, heads heads he gets uh, ten million dollars, tails he dies, and you tell him the coin is in your favor fifty one percent of the time, you get heads. He is committed to the view that he will keep flipping that coin forever. Right now, you and I recognize that this instantly leads to death, or if you prefer, spending the rest of your life in a penitentiary, which is exactly what has happened to him. Right. <laughs> um, and and he seems, to his credit, he seems ideologically committed and consistent on this issue. It's just like, at least I would consider it to be a, a pretty psychotic thing to be after. Um, but the, so the question is like, how does the effective altruism manifest? There's so many subsets of effective altruism. I think overall, it's good to be focused on the future. That's great. Uh, there's a question as to, you know, some EAs go, well, I don't buy the risk uh, perspective. So my perspective is we need to build AGI as fast as possible because that's going to help us cure disease and, and do all these wonderful things, which may be true. But then there's the other perspective, which is like, well, actually, I want to optimize for kind of a more conservative minded, like, let's be more cautious in our approach type thing. Okay. Um, so it can break down on either side of the debate. Absolutely. And one last little ingredient, um, the company, the, so Dustin Moskowitz is a founder, co-founder of Facebook, now the founder of Asana. Um, he was the original backer of the major effective altruist charity fund not, known as Open Philanthropy. Um, Open Philanthropy basically has funded every AI safety project that you can think of. I will say with the notable exception of, uh, of my company, because for exactly this reason, we wanted to maintain financial economic independence from this ecosystem. Mm. Not because we think it's bad, but just because we think that uh, we want to be able to kind of like steer our own ship, if that makes sense. And when we make recommendations to politicians, when we make recommendations to labs and work with them, they know that we're approaching it from an independent position. Um, this is, so Helen Toner's board seat on, um, uh, on OpenAI, the nonprofit, was an open philanthropy board seat. She was representing OpenPhil on, uh, on that board. And so this is really where like, 
you know, tons of, of the safety researchers at OpenAI are already effective altruists. Uh, OpenAI received $30 million of seed funding from Open Philanthropy to get started, and they even had a board seat. So it really is, you know, it's a very Gordian knot type arrangement. Very interesting. Uh, I've got one more question, but Sarah, do you want to ask anything? No, go ahead. Okay. Uh, so I think the last time we talked, you gave us, I would characterize it as a pessimistic estimate of the existential risk that we face from from AI. And I'm curious if anything has changed about your your view on that and where we're at with AI safety generally. Are we making any progress? Are things getting worse? Uh, in your view, what, what do you think about that? Because I left that conversation very scared, I will say. Well, hopefully that changes here. We'll, we'll see. Um, yeah, it's predicting the future is hard. Um, uh, but a couple things. So I can just list a few things that make me more optimistic and few, a few things that make me more pessimistic. And we can try to figure out if it's if the net results get sandwich it. Like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Why don't we do? Why don't we do? <laughs> why don't we do the positive part at the end? Um, an open face sandwich. Okay. Um, so, okay, I'll, I'll start with the, the pessimistic stuff. Um, there is more uh, compute, more more processing power than ever before. Uh, Nvidia keeps pumping out more and more powerful processors, and the cost of uh, processing power is plummeting even faster than it had before. Um, that's, I think, bad because. Uh, if we buy, we don't have to even think about loss of control, just weaponization, intentional weaponization of these systems, right? Uh, systems which can, uh, we strongly suspect will be able to design bioweapons, do cyber attacks, guide people through like synthesizing controlled chemical compounds, the works. Um, as you decrease the cost of computing power, you effectively proliferate uh, general human-like AI capabilities. At some point, this becomes simply untenable. Uh, I, I have never heard, in fact, I haven't heard anyone particularly even try to refute the idea that this will eventually happen. Um, it is happening extra fast because there's now a feedback loop that's being closed between the labs that are making tons of money from building these powerful systems and then the hardware companies like NVIDIA that are making the chips to optimize these systems. In fact, NVIDIA is even using these sorts of models to help them design better chips, thus closing an even more powerful economic feedback loop. Uh, so I think that's not great. I think anything that accelerates this area is not great just because our human institutions respond really slowly and we need all the time we can get to do this right. Um, okay, I think that's the OpenAI board reshuffle. I'm also kind of like, I, got, I just have question marks. I don't think we know yet. Um, the good news. Uh, so in terms of the inscrutability of these systems, we've made some progress. Uh, so these AI systems have... Well, they're like artificial brains in the sense that they have what are known as artificial neurons. And so roughly speaking, whatever you can imagine doing to the brain, you can kind of do to these systems. One of the things you can do to the brain is you can do, uh, I'm trying to remember if it's PET scans or, or so, some sort of um, brain scan where you can see neurons light up in response to stimuli. And those neurons can tell you something about the nature of the thought that's going on in the brain. In fact, we've had some success at decoding the sort of mind's eye perspective of of human beings in a somewhat creepy way, um, you can kind of do the same with some of these AI systems, it turns out. Uh, you can actually tell or get indications, they're not perfect, but indications when these systems are trying to lie, to generate outputs that are deceitful. That's kind of interesting, right? That sort of gives, I think, the developers an advantage over these systems, which is really what you're looking for, right? Try to anticipate and detect when bad plans are being developed. Um, Besides that, 
There's also been some really interesting research in interpreting the behaviors of clumps of these neurons. So no longer just thinking neuron by neuron, which is what Anthropic, for example, used to do, but now looking at clusters of neurons and do clusters capture concepts? And it turns out that kind of they do. So we're making a little bit more progress in understanding like, oh, okay, you know, it's thinking about, I don't know, it's thinking about guns. It's like, okay, well, that's a good, you know, good thing to know. Um, we are also getting to some degree, finer and finer control over these systems um, by figuring out ways to give them nudges during training that steer them toward behavior that we like. Um, that is an engineering problem. It's not like there's been one single big breakthrough, but it's happening iteratively and there are indications that there's economic pressure on labs to do that. Because what we keep finding is that they scale a giant system for $100 million, and then the system says racist things, or the system like spits out garbage. And that means that we're bottlenecked in terms of the value we can get from these systems by our ability to align them. And that immediately creates a de facto economic incentive to mm. exert greater control over AI systems. I don't suspect that'll be enough for super intelligence, but it's a start. I appreciate the nuanced answer, but I really do want to pin you down on whether you are more or less optimistic than you were one year ago. <laughs> uh, um, I would, I would say roughly the same. Roughly this. I would say roughly the that's same. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. All right. Well, Jeremy, this has been great. Another fascinating conversation about this. Really appreciate you taking the time to walk us all through it. And where can people find you if they want to get deeper into this topic? Actually, yeah. Uh, thanks. The Last Week in AI podcast is probably the, the place to go um, if they have questions for me personally. So our website, gladstone.ai, has a contact form. So feel free to, to reach out to me there. Okay, great. I will put links to all those things in the show notes. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jeremy. Okay, Sarah, well, I see you've been furiously scribbling notes throughout this interview. So what, what was your takeaway from that? How do you feel? Okay, I have a lot of takeaways, but the first thing that I want to dive into is, and what I couldn't help but think of through that conversation was like, what's your post-robot takeover job? Like, what's the job that you're going to do? Such a great question. The robots decommission us. I don't know. Maybe just play chess all day. You know, that's an interesting thing about AI that we don't talk about is that the How robots are, are already chess. better at <laughs> Be chess. Able to do that. But chess has never been more popular. So I think that tells you something about, you know, where we get meaning from. And we can still pursue our hobbies, even if the robots are better at us at, you know, everything. I think I'm going to get really into, like, carpentry. I'm okay. going like, to make tables, yeah. I think, yeah. is what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to start that maybe in the evenings now. Yeah, so carpentry, <laughs> pottery, so right. something with your hands. I'm just going to make things. But no, I, I think it's a, it was great to get an update from Jeremy after our conversation from last year. Because last year we talked a lot about like, okay, what are some of the risks around like power-seeking behavior? And like, yeah. how do these machines, these machine models have, you know, kind of the same kind of power-seeking behavior as humans and how to kind of keep that in check? Yeah. And that felt very theoretical when we were talking about it then. Yeah. And it feels like, so anyone who hasn't listened to that episode should probably go back and listen to it. But so it was interesting to then talk about it within the context of like, oh, now there's this big pivot where all of a sudden all these like theoretical conversations about AI safety and risk are kind of becoming a bit more concrete. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the time, the capabilities were impressive, but I think it was still more of a toy. Well, it and wasn't solving grade three math. No, it's <laughs> no, it wasn't. And I, but now I think, you know, you can use it for you know, ChatGPT4, you can use for 
uh, quite a few tasks. And you know, I'm planning a wedding right now. I use ChatGPT to help me do that, find venues, all that sort of stuff. It's found venues? Yeah. I feel no, like it, it would it, tell you to get married at like the Wendy's and like Liberty Village. It didn't give me the best options, but it gave me a bunch of <laughs> options that I then you know could pursue. And actually, the place we ended up going, it did recommend. Uh, so, you know, that used to be someone that's still someone's job, but that's that was someone's job, right? Wedding planning. Uh, and it's already taking at <laughs> Sorry, least for planners. cheap, cheap <laughs> bastards like me. It's taking imagine like your wedding, like all the napkins are different colors. Like everything's it's not like the strangest location. Okay, we're just trying. <laughs> this wedding was generated by AI, but it just—it's funny because, like, I think those applications also go like it goes to show how far behind people like you and me are. It's like we're just getting up to speed on like, ooh, this chat GPT thing. Like I can kind of use it for like writing emails or like finding a restaurant. Meanwhile, Jeremy's like here at the forefront talking about like, no, like yeah. reinforcement learning. And like it just it is interesting to get someone like that on as well, too, because it just there's such a gap between kind of how the public, aka us, kind of get familiarized with these tools versus like kind of like what's on the horizon. So I feel like we got a, a bit of a sneak peek on like, okay, this is what actually people are are talking about it, it feels like we're getting kind of like the safety scissors version of yeah ai so it's it's hard to tell what's actually going on but that's why we have people like jeremy on to <laughs> exactly right <laughs> let us know what is actually happening but i was i was heartened at least that he uh said that he didn't feel any less optimistic or more pessimistic maybe is a more accurate way of putting it than he did last time so at least we're not uh we're not regressing yeah that's true Everyone, everyone's confused, but it's just different. It's different. It's complicated, but, uh, but these conversations help, help at least help us help give us the knowledge to understand the problem a little bit, a little bit better. So yeah, great. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, should we leave it there? I think so. All right. Well, this has been another episode of free lunch by the peak. If you enjoyed this and want to find past episodes, you can search for us free lunch by the peak, wherever you get your podcasts and please leave us a positive review. Take a minute on Apple podcasts and uh, let us know what you think. Really appreciate that. Thank you to Jeremy Harris for joining us and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.